0: I was quick to say that, that numbers are not indicative of the health of a church, but I do also think that sometimes we don't celebrate things enough. And I just wanted to mention a couple of things to you. First of all, on Palm Sunday, we baptized a dozen people out here in City Square after the second service, and it was just a terrific opportunity. Uh, just just a, a, just a terribly exciting thing to be a part of a moment like that in people's lives as they're witnessing to the fact that Christ has done so much in their lives already that he reached into their lives and that they're being transformed by the gospel of Christ. The other thing I wanted to say is that last Sunday on Easter Sunday we had uh, 800 people here in our three services which is the largest attendance that we've ever had at City Church and I think what's so remarkable about that is that it comes After a time of COVID, when so many churches around the country have been decimated by COVID and somehow by God's grace, uh, we had more people than we've ever had before. So I just want to say about that, I want to say thank you to the Lord for that. What do we take from that? Well, we take that whatever good is happening at City Church is a result of God's grace and that we press on and that we don't rest on uh, on any laurels and we don't rest on any one person's uh, strengths or abilities or talents here, that we are uh, based upon the grace of God and we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, anything good that's happening is coming out of that. Let me say a quick word of prayer, if you don't mind. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for the privilege of... Uh, proclaiming the gospel. uh, For those of us who have been called and who have received uh, the gospel, Lord, we thank you for what it's doing in our lives. And we pray that as a church that we would continue to be working to to bring spiritual and social and cultural renewal to this city as we are transformed uh, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray, amen. I uh, just want to take a moment and reset where we were before Easter. We were in a series called the seven sayings of the cross. We were looking at the things Jesus said in the final hours of his passion, his suffering on the cross. Uh, initially, as, as I told you when we began, the series was intended to take us up to Easter, like it would end just before Easter, perfectly designed, prepared to, uh, to prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday, but for a number of reasons, the series got uh, delayed, so we only made it to the third saying uh, before Easter Sunday. This morning, I want to continue the series, and I want to look at the fourth saying of Jesus, found in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, if you have a Bible. Uh, digital, hard copy, old school, whatever you have, Uh, find Matthew chapter 27 in the New Testament and I will meet you there uh, in just a moment. In a small two-bedroom apartment not far from the home in which she used to live, Carly breathes an exhausted sigh of relief after putting her three-year-old son and five-year-old daughter to bed. She straightened the apartment a bit, grabbed her favorite comforter, and curled up on the couch with the remote control and a glass of wine, her first chance to relax from the day. When it suddenly dawned on her that it was two years ago to the day that her husband told her he was leaving her. Why me, God, she whispered, as a single lonely tear ran down her cheek. In a suburban restaurant on the opposite side of the city, a middle-aged man sits in a booth all alone as the sun sets outside, trying to focus on the ball game on the screen above the bar. Just before he left work for the day, his boss called him into his office and said, I have to let you go, I'm sorry. He wonders how he will explain it to his wife They just bought a big new house along with a big, new mortgage. And the kids need braces. Where are you, God? He wonders. Scott had just returned to his office from a business lunch and had settled into the project that he'd planned to spend most of the afternoon working on. The first time his cell phone buzzed, he didn't recognize the number, assuming it was just another one of those telemarketers. He just let it go. But he happened to look at the digital clock on his desk, 1.17 p.m. The numbers are still seared into his memory. When the cell phone buzzed again and the same number appeared, he thought, well, I should answer it. This is Scott, he answered. When he kissed his wife goodbye that morning as he left the house, he had no idea it would be the last time that he would ever see her. As he ended the call, he closed his eyes and cried, Dear God, no. No. Each of those stories are true, stories from people whom I have known over the years. And even though the stories weren't shared in confidence, I've changed the names and some of the details so that no one, wherever they're listening to our podcast, would recognize the people involved. But they're common enough stories that something like one of those things has happened to many of us, even if the details aren't exactly the same. You know how it goes. It always seems like the worst news comes at the moments that you least expect it. And it takes your breath away. No matter how spiritual you are, no matter how much of the Bible you know, no matter how long you've been following Christ, you feel forsaken in those moments, don't you? Like like God has left you, like he's abandoned you, betrayed you. Of all the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, perhaps this one that we're looking at today is the one that we most easily identify with. The authors record it. The authors of the New Testament record it in Aramaic for that they were uttered. The words were uttered in the language of Jesus' childhood. Matthew records it in chapter 27, verse 46. Look at it with me, if you will. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, we identify with those words of Jesus because so many of us have felt them at times in our lives. And even still, even though we identify with the words, they are some of the most startling, most disturbing, and I think even most confusing words in the Bible. Startling, confusing, disturbing for many reasons. One, that the Son of God could ask something like this. Startling too, because if you trace Jesus' words in the gospel, this is the only place in which Jesus doesn't refer to God with the intimate expression, Father. Notice it's not, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? It's more formal, my God, my God, why? And if those aren't reasons enough for this to be startling, the Greek word that's translated loud is the word anaboa'o, and it's a word that's never used anywhere else in the New Testament. A better translation of the word would be that Jesus screamed. He screamed. That's startling, wouldn't you say? In part because in every other situation during Jesus' last days, during the arrest, during the trial, during his flogging, when he stands before Pilate, he's always so calm, he's always so poised, but here he screams. In fact, it's so startling that some people have even read into these words the idea that Jesus was breaking, that he was losing his faith, that he was giving up on God, saying, You failed me. You have failed me. On the other hand, these Words give tremendous credibility to the reliability of the story of Jesus' death on the cross. A lot of you have heard or read somewhere that, well, you, you know, you can't trust the stories in the New Testament. They're not historically reliable. People say they were made up. But if you were making up an account about the death of the founder of your faith and you were trying to promote that faith... You would never put such unheroic, disheartened, hopeless, despairing words in your founder's mouth as his last words. You'd never do this. You wouldn't allow him to say something like this. And so it gives credibility to the story, doesn't it? No one is shying away from it. No one's trying to make it look better than it does. No one's trying to hide these words. The story is told uh, that the great scholar and leader of the Reformation, Martin Luther, was studying this passage one day, and for hours he sat and stared at the text. He said nothing, he wrote nothing, but he silently pondered these words of Jesus, and suddenly he stood up and he exclaimed, God forsaken by God, how can it be? And the question, of course, is what do these words mean? And, and, and there, there, there are certainly mysteries here in these words that no man can explain. But let's do try to understand as best we can, and perhaps the best way to try to understand them is to begin with what these words clearly don't mean. And first, I want you to see that Jesus is not responding Uh, to his physical suffering. This isn't about his physical suffering, though he did suffer physically. He doesn't say, my hands, my hands, my head, my head, my feet, my feet. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Second, Jesus didn't, though people have read into this, uh, the opposite, Jesus did not lose his faith. Now, how do we know that? Well, for one, look at what he says. He says, my God, my God. You don't cry out to something that you don't believe exists. For instance, if something bad happens to you, you would never cry out, Batman, Batman, why have you forsaken me? You only cry out to whom you believe exists. But in addition to that, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 here. Psalm 22 was written by Israel's ancient King David, which... While Psalm 22 described David's feelings during a period of suffering, it was ultimately pointing to, ultimately fulfilled in these moments of Christ's suffering on the cross. Here's how Psalm 22 reads. See if you see any similarity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? why are you so far from saving me so far from my cries of anguish my God I cry out by day but you don't answer by night but I find no rest yet you are enthroned as the Holy One you are the one Israel praises and you our ancestors put their trust they trusted and you delivered them To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Psalm 22, you see, is a psalm of faith even in suffering and distress. And so in Jesus' suffering, he's quoting a psalm of faith. He hasn't lost his faith. That's not what this is about either. But By the way, this is what faith is. Do you know that? This is what faith is. Faith is the belief that God is still God even when you're hanging on a cross. Even when you're in the midst of suffering. Now, the, these, these words are certainly a cry of distress, but they're not a cry of distrust. Third, Jesus wasn't calling Elijah. When he cries out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, people on the ground think that he's calling out Elijah, the old prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. Because you could also refer to Elijah with that expression, Eli, Eli. So the people around think he's asking for Elijah to come and do a miracle and rescue him. Look at verse 47. When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling Elijah. But again... We know that isn't true because he was quoting Psalm 22, which wasn't about Elijah at all, nor directed at Elijah. So none of those things, what, this, what this, these words are about. So what do they mean then? If they aren't a cry of physical agony, if they aren't a loss of faith, if they're not a plea for the prophet Elijah, what are these startling words about? What do they mean? Well, it's clear that these words are intended to signal to us something new, something altogether horrific is happening that hasn't already happened to Jesus. As we said, it's not about the physical suffering. Jesus has suffered all kinds of physical suffering and didn't scream. No, there's something new happening here, something far worse than the physical agony that he has suffered. Something so awful, something so horrific that the Messiah screams. What's happening in these words? What these words mean is that God the Father has banished his Son from his presence. God the Father has banished his Son from his presence. That's what the word that's translated forsaken means, to abandon someone, to desert them, to leave them helpless. God has abandoned Jesus in this moment. Now now, now understand that Jesus knew what it was to be abandoned, uh, to be forsaken. Early in his life, members of his own family deserted him. His hometown deserted him. The whole nation of Israel had forsaken him. His disciples had abandoned him at the cross. But in every instance, he could turn to his heavenly father until now. Now, God withdraws his presence from Jesus and turns his back upon him. And the son screams, my God, my God, why? Back in 2007, some of you may remember this, Daniel Day-Lewis started a movie called There Will Be Blood. Anyone remember that movie? Anyone remember? Yeah, a few of you. It was loosely based on a novel by Upton Sinclair called Oil. Daniel Day-Lewis won an Oscar for his role in the movie. In fact, it's considered by critics one of the 10 best movies of the 21st century. There's a scene in the movie where Daniel Day-Lewis gets on a train with his deaf son, realizing that he can no longer take care of him. Before the train takes off, the father gets off the train, signaling to his son that he's going to go speak to the conductor. The train starts to move. The boy sees his father leaving and walking toward his car, and so the boy tries desperately to get off the train, but he can't. He's been forsaken by his father. Can you imagine the pain, the sense of loss, fear, the sense of rejection he must have felt. I've often thought that we get a little glimpse of, a little glimpse of what Jesus is feeling here almost every Sunday in children's ministry. Mom's come down the hallway to the nursery for the first time ever. They leave their child with someone else. Mom knows that the child is perfectly safe, but the child doesn't know that. And so she clings to her mother because for all she knows, she will never see her again. She doesn't know life outside of her mother's presence. So she screams in agony. But I say it's only a glimpse of what Jesus felt because what Jesus felt here is infinitely greater. No husband or wife has ever been so one with their spouse as Jesus was with his father. No child has ever been so one with his parent. No soul has ever been so one with its body as the son was one with the father. From all of eternity... Therefore, when the father barred the door, when the father cast out the son, whatever he experienced would have been infinitely worse than all of the abandonments, all the betrayals, all the forsakenness that all of humanity throughout history has ever felt. That's why he screamed. Because the father who is the source of all good, all light, all comfort, all meaning, all love, banished him from his presence. No human has ever felt such agony. Much of the rest of the New Testament is given over to explaining what happened in this moment on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 explains it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. In other words, in this moment, Jesus somehow became sin. When God looked at Jesus on the cross, he no longer sees his son, he saw sin imagine that somewhere in the universe there is a cesspool containing all of the sins that have ever been committed. The atrocities of the Holocaust, rape, pedophilia, greed, envy, hatred. The cesspool is deep, dark, and indescribably foul. All of the evil deeds that men and women have ever done are floating there. That cesspool is emptied out onto Jesus in that moment. No wonder God turns away. Who could bear to watch it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus screams. That's what this is about. The father has banished his son from his presence. Now I want to close with with five thoughts. The implications of the father banishing his son from his presence. The first, as we listen to these words of Jesus on the cross, we hear the hideousness of our sin. So hideous, the father can't even look at his own son. This is the cost of my lies, my greed, my envy, my lust, and yours. It's not cute It's not sweet. It's not just my little vice or my little struggle or whatever other euphemism we would use to describe our sin. It is hideous. It's hideous. Second, we hear the horror of a godless eternity. I mean, listen to his scream. Hear the cackling laughter of, Satan, this is what hell will be like. The worst of earth still retains something of the goodness of God but hell will be completely and totally evil. Look at Jesus on that cross. If Satan is allowed to do that to the Son of God when God turns his back what will he be allowed to do to those who have rejected God's Son? Third, we hear the uniqueness of Christ. Most of you have heard me say this before, but I think it bears repeating every time we speak to the issue of suffering. One of the great philosophical questions that human beings have asked throughout the ages, one of the stumbling blocks that many people have to belief in God is the problem of suffering. If God is good, why do people suffer? And of course, to make it more personal, we ask that question. Not like it's just some philosophical question, some abstract theological question. It's a personal question. We ask it when we suffer. Why? Why me, God? It's a question all of us have asked in the face of suffering. And I'm not sure anyone on this side of heaven gets that question answered in a way that is wholly satisfying. What I do know is this, that in all of the religions of the world, Christ is the only religious leader who willingly endured such agony so that whatever else we might say about suffering, we can also say that Christ knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, imprisonment, and yes, abandonment at a level no one has ever experienced before. There is no abstractness about suffering for Jesus. He doesn't just teach on suffering. He suffers. It was personal for him. Take all of the evils in the history of the world, from the ovens of Treblinka to the killing fields of Cambodia to those we see being played out in Ukraine today. Altogether, they pale in comparison To the agony that Jesus suffered in that one moment on the cross. Whatever suffering you feel today, whatever evil you may have encountered, know that Jesus understands it. He has felt it. He personally knows it. I may not ever be able to give you an answer why. Not this side of heaven. Maybe not even in heaven. I I don't see evidence in scripture that God answers those why questions in heaven. I don't even know that we will care. But I do know this. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. It's a personal thing for him. Uh, Fourth, I think that we hear in these words, for those of you who are going through suffering of some kind right now, whatever kind of suffering it may be, Uh, the loss of a loved one, a divorce, a child who's kind of gone off in a different direction than you had hoped for them, some physical ailment that you have, a job that you've lost, I don't know what it is, but whatever kind of suffering that you're going through, I think we hear in these words the secret to enduring suffering. Far from giving up on God, far from breaking, even in the midst of the worst abandonment in human history, Jesus is praying to God in the face of his suffering. My God, my God. Regardless of the abandonment he felt, he's still believing, still being faithful all the way through it. I told you a few minutes ago that he's quoting Psalm 22, and I, I read to you a bit about how Psalm 22 starts. It's a psalm of suffering, I said, and distress, but of faith in the midst of suffering. I want to read to you a little bit more of Psalm 22. The psalmist writes, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pass and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment, which is precisely what the Roman soldiers did with Jesus' clothes. This is suffering. Would you agree with me that what the Psalm is writing about. The psalmist is suffering. Does that sound like suffering to you? Does that sound like something you've felt? Yeah, the psalmist is suffering. Let me read on. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. He goes on. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Now what's, what, 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 what is he doing? What, what is Jesus doing? What, actually, what's the psalmist doing? And then as Jesus is on a cross quoting Psalm 22, what's he doing? See, I think this is the... This is the secret to enduring suffering. He's letting the Bible trump his experience. He's letting the Bible trump his experience. When he felt abandoned, when he felt alone, when he felt that all was lost, he held on to a passage of scripture which told him this is not pointless. This is not senseless. I know what this means. God has not abandoned me. He let the scriptures trump his experience. He let the scriptures trump his senses. He let the scriptures trump what he thought and what he felt. Of course, the truth of Psalm 22 is ultimately demonstrated in Christ. The execution of Jesus has turned hundreds of thousands, even millions of people toward God. People from all the ends of the world and to the ends of time. Jesus Christ held on to that Psalm when he was on the cross. That's the secret to endurance in the midst of suffering. When you don't feel there's hope anymore. When you don't feel there's a point to anything anymore. When you don't feel like God cares anymore. Hold on to the scriptures. Let them trump you your experience, your feelings and your senses. Feelings are real but they're not always true. Let the scriptures trump your experience. That's what Jesus did on the cross but of course for the scriptures to trump your experience you have to know them. You have to be in them. You have to read them. You have to be saturated with them. If you don't read them and then all of a sudden you go through something hard, they won't be there for you. Oh, you can go back to them and read them, but I'm telling you it just takes time for them to seep into your soul in a deep way that you can hold on to in the midst of suffering. Let the scriptures trump your experience. Feelings are real, but they're not always true. And finally, we, we hear in this cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We hear in this scream of Jesus, the depth of Christ's love for us. Sometimes I hear well-intentioned people make the mistake of referring to Jesus as a martyr, but please remember Jesus was no martyr. Martyrs have their lives taken from them. Jesus wasn't forced to give up his life. He willingly laid it down for you on the cross. Jesus' love for you is demonstrated in the way that love is always demonstrated through suffering. People who tell you they love you when all is going well, well, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but you don't really know. It's only when people suffer with you, suffer for you, that you can ever really know they love you. A year or two ago, I did a series on the questions that Jesus asked in the New Testament. And in that series, I said that one of the best studies that you could do in the Gospels is to go through and to pay close attention to the questions that Jesus asked. We looked at a bunch of the questions Jesus asked. This is a question that Jesus asks that on the surface seems to go unanswered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the surface it seems unanswered, but you know the answer. Answer it. Answer it right now in your own heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the answer? For me. For me. For you. For you. For you. For you. For you. That's why God forso- forsook his son. That's why he banished him from his presence. For me, for you. He was forsaken. He was abandoned. He was banished from his father's presence so that I, so that you would never have to be. Do you bow your heads with me? Whatever suffering that you're going through today, look at these words of Jesus on the cross. And know that you have not been forsaken by God. And would you answer the question in your own heart now? The answer that cries out throughout the ages. Over 2,000 years. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus asked. And the answer is. For me. He was forsaken for me. If you're here today and you've never heard that, you've never understood that Jesus Christ was forsaken, abandoned, banished by the Father, screaming out in agony over it for you, this would be a, a good time in the privacy of your seat in your own heart to say thank you Lord Jesus Uh, I believe that you died on the cross my sins are hideous and I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and uh, be my Lord be my Savior what king would ever do something so incredible for me and Lord Lord do pray for those here who are suffering this morning in some way shape or form that you would speak to them that you have not left them and I pray Lord that you would give each of us a deep commitment to be so saturated by the scriptures that the scriptures trump our experiences our feelings our senses what we can see that while it may look like we're abandoned while it may look like all hope is lost that you are still with us because Christ was forsaken so that we would never have to be. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We will spend the rest of eternity trying to understand the extent of what you sacrificed on the cross and the torment, the agony that you felt. We'll never understand it completely, but, but we thank you We thank you, and it's in your name that we pray, amen.